Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is the first instalment of Catch My Disease, where we discuss airway management and infection control in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, in this episode, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Now, we know that everyone is at COVID saturation point, but this episode isn't about telling you what to do, debating different guidelines or hashing out PPE. This is about going back to the basic science of infection spread, infection control, PPE, airway management and the relevance to anaesthesia. I think it's invaluable to actually know the very basics and then how this knowledge can be applied to our individual settings. Since the first reported case of COVID-19 in December of 2019, we have been bombarded with information about the pandemic. With time and an increase in our understanding of how this virus works, we have seen the constant evolution of infection control recommendations and changing guidelines for airway management. Over the last couple of months, the British Journal of Anesthesia have published some fantastic articles addressing infection control when managing the COVID-19 airway that we thought important to discuss. All of the recommendations that we talk about are those brought forth by the authors of the BJA review articles. Be sure to check the episode description for links. So let's get started with what we know about the virus and how the infection spreads. The COVID-19 virus, or the SARS-CoV-2 virus to be more specific, is transmitted through infected respiratory secretions. This is mainly via exposure to droplets from coughs and sneezes and contact exposure, but there is an exception to this in the form of healthcare workers performing procedures on these patients that generate artificial aerosols. Aerosols are small particle nuclei that may penetrate standard surgical face masks and disperse further than the standard respiratory droplets. We should also mention there has been some recent interest in what are called aerosol generating behaviours such as singing, shouting um, and other behaviours that may occur in upset or demented patients uh, and that is also being hashed out as well. Now we know that the virus can be transmitted by infected individuals even before they themselves have developed symptoms. Data from China shows that viral RNA is detectable in respiratory samples one to two days before symptoms develop. A small case study looking at the shedding pattern of the COVID-19 virus found that the viral load in a single asymptomatic patient was similar to that of symptomatic patients. Now at this stage, we don't know whether there is a proportional relationship between exposure to viral load size and the severity of clinical outcomes. In fact, we don't know the minimum infective dose of viral particles that results in transmission and infection for both aerosol and direct transmission routes. We do know that the diameter of the virus ranges from 60 nanometers to a maximum diameter of 140 nanometers, and that the tumor-like projections surrounding the outermost surface of the viral particle vary in length from 9 to 12 nanometers. So when you think about this in terms of the size of respiratory droplets, which are typically between 5 and 10 micrometers in length, there is the potential for each droplet to contain a large number of viral particles. Now, what do we know about environmental inoculation? Well, let's discuss this in terms of the different modes of transmission. There are lots of similarities between SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and COVID-19. For droplet transmission, we know that viral particles in droplets can be detected for at least three hours after being coughed into the air. When it comes to contact exposure, these viruses are detectable at 72 hours after contact with surface materials, noting though that there is an exponential decay in viral titers over time. 
Now, when we look at the way that aerosolized particles behave, the main consideration affecting particle behavior is the stillness of the air. Fine aerosols remain airborne in still air for several hours, whereas in disturbed air, the particles settle onto surfaces more quickly. It's worth noting at this point that research assessing post-cleaning samples for the presence of viral particles have come back negative, which suggests that current decontamination practices are effective. In this trial, air samples were also negative. Also, as we noted before, just because viral particles are present doesn't mean that we know what the threshold of the virus dose is for actual inoculation. Okay, now let's talk about how this information is relevant to current PPE recommendations. What are the current guidelines for anaesthetists? So first and foremost, there has been a shift in PPE recommendations by the World Health Organization such that PPE use and choice is risk stratified based on the procedure or contact being undertaken. There are obviously many hospital-based guidelines for healthcare workers in general that are coming into contact with COVID-19 patients. But specific for anaesthetists, ANSCA have produced PPE guidelines where the PPE choice is based upon three variables. Firstly, the community transmission risk, which is classified as low, moderate or high. Secondly, the risk of the patient having COVID-19. And thirdly, whether the procedure being undertaken is aerosol generating or not. The guidelines contain a nice flow diagram to help determine the specific risk and the PPE recommendations. Basically, where the overall risk of infection is deemed low, standard precautions are advised, which are gloves, mask, and eye protection, plus minus plastic aprons or gowns, where spraying or splattering of blood or body fluids is expected. As the risk of infection escalates, the recommendations are to employ standard precautions and increase through to contact precautions, droplet precautions, and airborne precautions. For the specific PPE requirements for each of these precaution groups, see Appendix 1, Section B of this document. I really like two things about this document. It actually mentions the variable of the community transmission rate, mm-hmm. although noting the fact that we're only going to know this about one to two weeks uh, behind. So yeah. what we're seeing today is what's happened previously. Yeah. And secondly, it does stick with well-established levels of PPE mm-hmm. rather than making up a sort of hybrid PPE, which we've seen in some other guidelines. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, as always, stick with your institution's guidelines, but I do I think the ANSCO guidelines are quite valuable. Yeah, I think they've done a pretty good job. Now, we cannot stress this enough. If you're going to be caring for patients where you risk infection from COVID-19, you need to practice donning and doffing PPE, particularly the PPE required for when you're performing an aerosol-generating procedure, as the majority of self-contamination occurs from incorrect doffing. So practice, practice, practice before caring for these patients. Okay, let's talk airways. So we've mentioned before that there are many procedures we undertake as anaesthetists that are aerosol generating. The ANSCA COVID statement lists these procedures as bag mask ventilation, tracheal intubation and extubation, ventilation via supraglottic airways and non-invasive ventilation including CPAP and BiPAP. When we look at PPE recommendations for aerosol generating procedures, we need to keep the following in mind. Firstly, generated aerosols have a propensity to follow airflow and therefore a much tighter seal around the PPE covering the healthcare worker's airway is required. Secondly, aerosolized particles are smaller in size than droplets and thus require PPE with an appropriate filtering capacity. So when you're doing aerosol generating procedures, the ANSCA recommendation is that for a moderate or high community transmission risk or where the patient's COVID risk is high, you use airborne precautions, which consists of an N95 or P2 respirator, eye shield or goggle protection, long-sleeved and fluid impervious gown and gloves plus minus double gloves. 
They also recommend considering the use of powered air purifying respirators, also called PAPAs, and elastomeric respirators, but only if you've been trained in their correct use and in donning and doffing. We've seen recent acknowledgement of the potential for airborne transmission by various bodies across the world, and particularly relevant in Australia by the Victorian DHHS in their October 23rd update for healthcare workers. Now, when you look at the delineations between mask type and their particle filtering capacity, we see that standard fluid-resistant surgical face masks only protect against body fluid sprays and large droplets. FFP2 or P2 respirators filter at least 94% of particles that are 0.3 micrometers or larger. The N95 mask filters at least 95% of particles that are 0.3 micrometers or larger. These results are from lab studies. They have not been able to be reproduced within a clinical context, and this is likely because of problems with user compliance and education. Now, when planning to intubate a confirmed or suspected COVID-19 patient in theatre, one of the biggest recommendations is to give yourself plenty of preparation time. Absolutely. In the ideal world, you need plenty of time to prepare the room for the intubation procedure and to correctly don PPE in a room completely separate to where the intubation will take place. Mm. Because of the limitations to the number of people present and the ease of assistance in a crisis, you need time to plan for potential difficulties and complications. So the preparation includes preparing all your airway equipment, ensuring you have a strategy aiming for a successful first intubation attempt, video laryngoscopy is recommended to limit exposure risk, ensure you have all the personnel you'll need, assigning roles and generating an airway plan before donning PPE. For staffing, the following recommendations have been given. Firstly, intubating teams should consist of one experienced intubator, one skilled assistant, and one team leader who acts as a backup intubator and who can also give drugs. And there should also be a run-up placed outside the room to assist. Now, during the first wave, I was on maternity leave, so I actually missed a lot of the planning that went into airway management, and I never took care of anyone suspected of having COVID-19. I'm curious, Kate, though, what was your experience? Did you ever have to intubate a pandemic patient? Uh, I did not. We all know there hasn't been a lot of COVID-19 in Queensland, thankfully. Uh, I did care for a patient with suspected COVID-19 who was a patient that fell unwell in hotel quarantine and had come from a part of the world with quite a high prevalence Mm. at the time. So uh, I guess effectively we followed the guidelines that we've discussed here Mm. and we're going to go into this a little further later on, but we did use at that stage a plastic sheet Mm. to intubate. Um, But look, the patient was uh, otherwise quite healthy and had minimal comorbidities and was a normal BMI, which made life quite easy. Absolutely, Uh, It was still quite a stressful experience and it helped to have someone with me who'd actually already taken care of a COVID suspect patient. So they provided the role of the backup intubator and giving the drugs and we, we had a good team and everything was fine but I think there's only under a handful of people in my department that Mm. have actually taken care of a a known COVID patient Mm. Um, so you know we're very lucky in Queensland and it would be interesting to get the experience some of our colleagues in Melbourne which we might be able to get into in future episodes. Absolutely. Now, at this point, we should talk about the use of intubation boxes and barrier enclosures. The BJA recently published a review article discussing the use of these devices that is well worth reading, and we will post a link in our episode notes, so be sure to check it out. So, barrier devices have been used to contain droplet spread and thus limit contamination of staff in the environment. Many of these techniques were conceived to assist in protecting staff in the setting of PPE shortages, like those seen during the first wave. And different places have created different types of barrier devices. Now, some of these include plastic wraps or tents, acrylic aerosol boxes, 
or combination of both of these. In the review article, there is a figure with a series of photos showing how different equipment has been used for these barrier devices, and it's well worth looking at just to see the different setups, particularly if you personally haven't been exposed to these practices in your own hospital. The authors of this paper didn't advocate the use of intubation boxes and barrier devices and expressed several important concerns and pitfalls about their use. These included that they may limit large droplet spread, but they may not protect against aerosolized viral particles. Simulations have raised concern about the risk of secondary aerosolization in these instances where trapped aerosols may be unknowingly released upon removal of the airway barrier device. And there were also concerns that these devices trap and concentrate aerosols in in higher doses, very, very close to the healthcare provider managing the airway. They suggested that negative pressure tent systems or rapid vacuum aspiration may provide better protection, but there is no evidence at this point and no trials assessing these devices. Also included in this list of concerns were potential infection hazards for multi-use barriers and barriers providing a false sense of security to healthcare providers managing the COVID-19 airway and subsequent failure of proper use of recommended PPE. Issues with the ergonomics included fit, specifically in an obese patient, discomfort and claustrophobia or anxiety, restlessness or combativeness, not usable for severe respiratory distress situations where patients are sitting up or semi-recumbent, limited space within the box for airway adjuncts like the bulky video laryngoscopes. Mm. Simulations have shown that intubation boxes are associated with higher rates of intubation failure and prolonged intubation times. Uh, This contrasts to other studies showing that powered respirator PPE do not affect the success of first-pass intubation with video laryngoscopes. Interference of the quality of the barrier by circuits, intravenous lines, nasogastric tube suction, etc. Concern about accidental extubation as a result of an entanglement within the box. And aid in operator stress when there is pre-existing stress from potential difficult airways and the physical limitations of working within PPE. The data that the authors assessed suggests that barrier devices may be more useful for extubation than intubation, but there are some important considerations before adopting their use in this setting. First, how will the patient respond to confinement within a physical barrier? Second, how will you manage if the patient fails extubation and needs urgent reintubation? There is also the additional risk of limited access during airway emergencies. For example, simulations of this scenario have shown that there is limited access for the airway assistant. As well as this, in situations where you're providing CPR and defibrillation, the barrier may represent a flammable oxygen reservoir and increase the risk of fire. Basically, the authors advocate against using intubation boxes and barrier devices where proper PPE is available, and they state that more research and information is needed before their use can be advocated. Now, there's still a lot of information to yet unpack for anaesthetists in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic, so be sure to tune in for the second instalment of Catch My Disease. It's been a really interesting discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or you would like to join us as a guest, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.